0: Sorry, slightly awkward now, I've got to get my, uh, my own, get this over, carrying all my bits with the communion and everything going on, so sometimes you have the problem where the person that's introducing you overhypes your message, turns out I have managed to overhype myself in the build up to the Ruth series, so we'll see how we get on, I might have, uh, might have given it a bit too much. Just pop that there so I don't tread on it during the sermon. So if you've got a Bible, do turn to, um, we're going to be looking in the book of Ruth, as you heard. So do turn to Ruth chapter one. Um, Ruth is, it's kind of about, oh, I don't know, a sixth of the way through your Bible. So you want to, if you find the book of Judges, um, following on from the book of Joshua, then after that is Ruth. So it's quite near the beginning. About 3 o'clock, the Friday just before the Friday just gone, was the time that I have felt the most anxious for quite some time. It was the time that Hannah told me that Boris Johnson had a press conference planned for five o'clock that day. and. I started to wonder why on earth is he preparing a press conference the Friday before, the Monday that has just gone, where the restrictions lifted. And I thought the only reason he could be having a press conference is to delay some of the restrictions that were due to be lifted the, the Monday just gone. And so my prediction was best case scenario for us was we were going to be delayed by a week and we'd have to wait until um, we could get on with meeting one another and going one another's houses and stuff like that. And you might think, well, that's only a week, Duncan. Surely that's all right. But I did a quick calculation in my head and realized that there would be 10 things that we would have to, me and Hannah, would have to cancel or rearrange as a result of a week's delay, which made me realize that we had gone pretty hard on, let's go and see people and have people over and things like that. But some of these things are things that would not be easy to rearrange, that just dates that happened to come inside, all of those sorts of things. And I realised I was I was gutted that I would might have to to say or delay some of these things, and in those anxious two hours between what ended up being an okay press conference and no delays and all of those, as you know, that anxiety reminded me that we are still in this place where just one press conference can change everything, aren't we? Where It was a reminder to me, we are still in this really vulnerable stage where anything can happen, just, I don't know, a new variant comes and and things all look very, very different in this time. And we are still in this place of uncertainty as a people. And maybe some of you are probably feeling, I'd imagine, some of the vulnerability, vulnerability and the uncertainty more than others of us. Maybe you're still waiting for your job sector to reopen and and having to wait until that to think am i even going to be able to find a job in my old place of work or my old area of work or maybe you're uh, you're, you're struggling financially and you think i'm okay now but if there is another lockdown for whatever reason am i even going to be able to afford to live through it well the book of ruth is about these kind of people about people, everyday, normal believers in God, who are experiencing vulnerability and are going through times of uncertainty. And the book of Ruth is about how it's these people, the vulnerable, the uncertain, that God loves to show up in to reveal his abundance and to show his overwhelming provision. And so we are, are, are hoping that this series will really encourage us in this particular moment that we find ourselves in. We're going to be doing a seven-part teaching series in Ruth that will take us through to mid-July. And it's a really different tone to the previous two teaching series we've done. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at the Book of Revelation, both in their own ways, very challenging, whether that's just, just trying to get your head around some of the imagery that's in Revelation or whether it's the, the challenge of some of Jesus' words in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. The Book of Ruth, on the other hand, is just quite simply a beautiful story. One of the commentators that I was reading about it was that if you if you know the Book of Ruth, when someone mentions it to you, it just makes you smile. It's just one of those books. The more you know it, and this has been my experience as I've looked into it in in more depth than I have previously, the more you know it, the more you just love it. And it's really simple to grasp. It's one of those books where you just hear it read out or you, you listen to it or you read it yourself and you can, you can understand it. You can get the flow of the narrative, but not just understand the narrative. You can actually take something away of, of some of the interaction of the characters or something of who God is. Take it away to ponder and to think on yourself. And it's one of those books where very little is actually known about it. So we don't really know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written, who it was written to. And so because of those reasons, we don't know why it was written. And so what it means is it's not one of those books where you have to know all of these things about it in order to really understand it. You know, you don't need to know all of this background or all of this kind of subtext of it. Or, you know, here's 10 things that you need to know. if If you keep in mind all of these things for every sentence of the book of Ruth you read, you don't need any of that. Largely with Ruth, what you see is what you get. And yet, as with all scripture, the more that you dig, the deeper you go, there is gold to be mined out of this book. You will find beauty and richness within Ruth. And my hope is that this is what we will see as we go through it, that we will love this book. We will love the characters that we find within it. And in turn, of course, that will lead us to loving God all the more. And we will see how good God is, how kind he is, how generous. And so given how beautiful it is, how simple it is, I think we should just start reading it. So Ruth chapter 1, we're going to read the first five verses today. The words should appear on the screen just behind me if you have your Bible. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Marlon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I'm calling today's message, emptiness is not the end. This story does, as you've just heard, it begins in tragedy. But that is not how this book ends. This mini episode, as we're going to see, is a cautionary tale for us in the dangers of compromising in our faith. But what it also tells us is that no matter where we've come from, no matter where we've gone, no matter what we've done, we are able to experience god's abundant provision in our lives and verse 1 immediately sets the scene for us it talks about how this uh, it, this is happening this whole book in the days when the judges ruled and this is talking about the book of judges which is the book just before ruth and just to set it in the, the time frame, if maybe you're not so familiar with it, you might have heard that God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and uh, and were under the rule of Pharaoh, enslaved there. But then Moses leads them out in the great Exodus, the the parting of the Red Sea, the millions of God's people escaping from Egypt, that moment, and then God leads them on a uh, on a through the wilderness, on the journey towards what is called the Promised Land. And then Moses doesn't lead the people into the promised land, but a guy Joshua does lead them in, finally they make it. And then after Joshua, as they start to settle in the promised land is the book of Judges, where these different characters called the Judges over Israel lead the people in that time. And so while it gives us a bit of a a timeline of when this was exactly happening, it also gives us a little bit of context the days of the Judges were some of Israel's worst days. They were days of bloodshed. They were days of profound immorality and turning away from God and thinking, oh, that God over there looks pretty interesting. Let's see what he's got to offer and what's going on there. Maybe you know Yahweh, he's been good to us so far, but perhaps there's a bit of an upgrade on offer. And so they turned away from God and they saw things did not go well for them in that time. And I guess Nowhere really sums it up better than the very last verse of Judges that you might have open on your page as you look at the first chapter of Ruth that says, In those days there, were, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Totally lawless and godless this time. And it's against this backdrop that we have of a nation walking away from god and abandoning him that here in our passage we zoom right in on a single family quite literally walking away from god that's what we see in the the second half of verse one a man of bethlehem in judah went to sojourn that is a word that we use literally never (laughs) went to go and live in this place Moab the country of Moab him and his wife and his two sons and verse 2 we learn that's Elimelech that's Naomi his wife and then two sons Marlon and Kilion on their way to live in this place called Moab and for us in our hyper mobile society where just moving house is no big deal do it all the time relocation not a problem this seems to just make it doesn't it doesn't register with us seems to mean very little in fact, it makes total sense. you think verse one, we learn that they are experiencing a famine, and so we think if you are living somewhere where there is a famine, of course move to somewhere else where there is not a famine. that just makes good sense that's wisdom right there, right? get on right, move, find the place that does not have the famine and go there. I mean check it's got fiber optic broadband before you go but provided it has sounds great but this is not just any relocation for these people this family is leaving the promised land this family is leaving that land that God had spoken generations ago and said this is the place I want to gift you to live in he'd spoken it to Abraham so long ago and repeatedly saying I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it and he'd set them out of slavery and defied the odds time and time again. And finally, he had led them into this place after their ancestors had wandered through the wilderness and they had arrived, arrived in this land that God had set apart to say, this is the place that I want to give you. This is the place where in this time, in this moment, this is where God is. And this is the place I've set apart to pour out my abundant favor and my goodness. He had described it in Exodus chapter three as a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a very weird description, isn't it? But for them, it would have resonated as it's just the the goodness and the richness of God will be found in this land. But these people, they're not just leaving the promised land. Notice how the author twice, verse one and verse two, points out they are from Bethlehem in Judah. Judah was, in the beginning of the book of Judges, a particularly chosen and blessed tribe. God had picked them out and worked through them to consolidate the claiming of this promised land. There's an argument to be made that the tribe of Judah is actually the most blessed tribe and most chosen tribe of God at this moment. But they're not just from Judah. They're from Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. It is right there in the name. This is God's place. Like the cradle of God's blessing is right here. It was known for its harvest of, of wheat, of olives, its harvest of barley, its harvest of almonds, its harvest of grapes, the whole lot. It was the place of God's blessing. They are leaving this rich vein of God's goodness, God's provision, and God's promise. If he's going to provide for anybody, it's the people of Bethlehem in Judah. They are loaded with the promise of God. And yet when the famine comes, these people aren't found looking to God. They're found looking to the fields of Moab. They are looking outside of God for all of their needs to be met. That as we don't know much about this, crump, this, this famine, but as, a, as another crop fails, as another hungry day rolls by, we don't see them on their knees crying out to God. We just see them eyeing up the alternatives. And Moab is not just some kind of neutral place that looked quite good. Moab was historically Israel's greatest enemy, and so God's greatest enemy. There was no more godless place than Moab. But we have to assume then for them to consider it, Moab must have looked good, it must have looked attractive. We can only assume there was tall and beautiful crops just flowering out of the ground in Moab. That The combine harvesters of Moab were working overtime to, to haul in all of the grain and all of the wheat that was coming out of their fields during this time of famine in the promised land. we must only assume that there was bread absolutely everywhere. And probably not just any old bread, but probably some artisan sourdough bread that they had mastered in lockdown in their most recent pandemic in Moab. And probably they could see the Moabites, the people that were living in this land, and they would have looked happy and plump. And they would have been laughing. And I imagine they looked upon those people and thought, That is what the good life looks like. Life in Moab looks pretty sweet. But I know God has promised to us abundance and the house of bread. But how, as we are facing famine, how is this better than all that is going on in Moab? And the more that they looked upon how others were living, the more they saw an alternative life, the more they thought, well, living as the people of God, living in this land that he's given us and living with the promises of God, seems to lead to scarcity, seems to lead to us missing out. And living in the godless land seems to lead to stomachs never hungry, secure, security, comfort, everything you could ever need. And actually it looks far more like the land of promise than the promised land. And the pull for them was so strong that they compromised on their faith in order to experience everything that Moab had. I think today we find ourselves absolutely surrounded by the fields of Moab. We find ourselves daily confronted with opportunity to compromise on our faith with things that seem to offer way more than living faithfully for, for God. But I think it's so easy to look at the Christian life and think, it's so easy for us to look at our lives and to think, is this really the abundant life? Is living faithfully for God really, is it flourishing? It feels like scarcity, it feels like missing out. It feels far more like famine than it does fullness. And despite us perhaps being loaded with God's promise, we can start to look at the fields of Moab that are around us and think, maybe not even consciously, but just think maybe I will compromise. What does the life of compromise of a Christian in 21st century England look like? Well, it may not look like us completely walking away from our faith and leaving the land and getting a mortgage in Moab. But it may just look like us slowly being drawn into the land of compromise. Of just being bombarded with this culture of to live a fulfilled life, we need to live a sexually fulfilled life. And pornography, hey, it's not only okay, but because of that it's it's good and it's healthy. And so we should, we should go after it. And, and as we can find ourselves questioning, look, is holding a traditional Christian ethic, is that actually really healthy for me? Is it helping me in any real way? And we can find ourselves drawn little by little into that place of compromise. Perhaps the promise of career success and all of the status and the riches and the good life that that seems to to offer us can get hold of us and we find ourselves lying about our co-workers we find ourselves cheating the numbers we find ourselves doing whatever it takes to try and climb that totem pole or whatever place we work to get to the top and chase after those dreams or i think compromise as believers can look really subtle. I think sometimes it can look like us building our lives around wanting to be comfortable. This is where I feel vulnerable. This is where I think I can easily compromise of just that modern desire for everything to be easy, life to be cozy, all of my furnishings to be soft, And so wanting to avoid any of the costs of Christian living, that when I get down to it, perhaps of the sums of, am I going to start giving to church or am I going to buy this lovely mahogany coffee table that will just complete my living room, that there's no question about what I'll do, and, and it'd be like the, the 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 Israelites looking at the land of Moab and thinking, "How is this life that I'm living now any better than what's over there?" And instead of making decisions that are based on faith, instead of making decisions that are based on trust, and really looking to God and holding on to His promises, I start making decisions based on What will make my life feel better now? Or what feels most practical now? What feels most comfortable now? And yet for all of their tall crops, the allure, the delicious bread that was available in Moab, for all of that, the promises of those fields were deceptive and they were empty. At the end of verse two, we see that they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Your translation, it might have settled there. That's where they came to a halt. That's where they started to put their roots down. They'd made this conscious decision. We're going out of the land of God and we are choosing here. And then the transition from the end of verse two to verse three is so stark. So they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. Suddenly, just out of nowhere, Elimelech just dies, Naomi's husband. It's so quick, it's so unexpected. There's no clues that this is about to happen in the text at all and we're left with, hang on a second, how has this happened? Why has this happened? It's just not a question that the text is interested in answering at all. And we're just left to see Naomi, this widow, now husbandless in a foreign land. But she's got two sons, so she still has hope. She's got two sons, and so now where her hope would be found would be children. Lots and lots and lots and lots of children. Because if she's got her sons and they can have children and she can have grandchildren, they can start to strengthen once again the family unit. They can be a little bit less vulnerable. It's gonna be a tough time, but maybe if they can have lots and lots of kids, then they can start to grow old. They They can all look after one another as a giant family. And as she approaches being elderly and old herself, the family will be strong enough to look after her. And things are looking good. Verse four, her sons get married. And so maybe uh, things will be okay. Things are looking up. But then verse four ends. They lived there about ten years. On the face of it, doesn't seem too dramatic. But it's what's missing that stands out. No children. So no stability, no security. These would have been ten years for Naomi that start as years of slight concern, but then quite quickly turn into years of worry, of stress, of anxiety, and then genuine fear of realization of somehow not only one of my sons isn't able to have any children to help us be more secure, but both. And the pain and the, the fear that would come with that, and then into this already desperate situation comes the unthinkable. Verse 5. And both Marlon and Killion, her sons, died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. With the same suddenness and abruptness of her husband Elimelech, Seemingly both within a very, very short space of time, first one son and then the other die, leaving her totally alone. Just picture for a moment Naomi by that third graveside after burying her husband, now burying not just one, but both of her sons away from home, foreign land, distant from everything she's known. She had dreams when she came into Moab, dreams of having plenty, dreams of all of this bread and wheat and flourishing land that she could live off, dreams of growing old with Elimelech, of sitting on the front porch with him. She'd probably already been to Ikea and picked out the rocking chairs that they would sit on. She had dreams of a huge family of grandkids that are all over the place, running riot, clambering all over them, that they, she could just spoil rotten. This was the life that Moab had promised her. This is why they left. This is why they kept going into this land. And now everything has gone. The language of verse five, the, the second half of it, is so powerful. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She was left, totally abandoned and alone. She was without. She'd lost everything. He was a person defined by her lacking. Apparently, this is a Hebrew word that is unusual to find in this kind of sentence that just underscores and underlines how little she has and how tragic her loss has been. That she's even lost her identity. Do you notice it said the woman? The most natural word would have just been to say Naomi, but it says the woman. With no family, this elderly woman, this elderly widow with no hope of continuing her family line. She'd lost her role, lost her place in society, far from her home, far from any support network that might be able to keep her going. She is now fading away into total insignificance, to nothingness. Naomi has been totally emptied Do you see what Moab has done to her? From a distance, the promise looked so good. It looked like it offered so, so much worth leaving the things of God in order to get hold of it. But as soon as she settled, as soon as they entered into the land to live, Moab has not given her anything. Moab has just taken Do you see the deception of the land of Moab? See how much it promises to us and it doesn't just let us down. It doesn't just disappoint us, but it empties us of all that we have. It lures us in with false promises and Naomi has been emptied and hollowed out. This opening episode is a cautionary tale for us of the fields of Moab that are all around us. This is how the power of sin operates. It promises it's going to fill all of our needs. It looks so good. The life looks so full that it offers. It lures us in and then it will take all that we have and it will leave us in ruin. We sadly at the moment live in a time where the church in particularly the UK and the United States at the moment, I'm sure you have seen has suffered from a lot of high-profile, influential leaders losing their leadership positions, falling out of leadership because of moral compromise. Whether that's sexual sin, abuse of power. And one thing that this tells us is that the fields of Moab still look really good today. That if these people who are meant to be set apart as examples of what faithful living after Jesus looks like, and they are compromising, any one of us is in danger of the same. And it also tells us that the fields of Moab are just as destructive as in the days of the judges. That we see these the lives of these leaders that fall, that they get totally emptied out just as Naomi does. They lose community, they lose their job, they lose their ministry, sometimes even losing their family. The power of sin is just as destructive today and just as deceptive. And with so much opportunity for each and every one of us to compromise on our faith, to not live faithfully and to turn away and to get lured in, we need strong motivation to say no. And Naomi, the story of Naomi here is our warning. This is where it leads. Not to a, a fullness as it promises. But compromise will take all that we have and it will empty us out. But while this opening episode it is a cautionary tale for us, we need to understand the weight of it and some of what's going on here the book of Ruth as a whole is not a cautionary tale. This is not the end of the book of Ruth. We have a very short sermon series if this was the end of the book of Ruth. And this is not the last that we will see of Naomi. It may look like Naomi is about to be devoured by the land of Moab, just like her husband has been, just like both of her sons have been. But emptiness is not the end of Naomi's story. That although she has been deceived and lured into compromise and godless living, this is not the end for Naomi. That although she has left the promised land and she put her roots down deep outside of God's blessings for years and years on end, this is not the end for Naomi. That although she suffered tragedy she's been emptied of everything that she had she has lost even her name this is not the end for naomi that as we wonder is she going to be the next in line of these sudden and abrupt endings and finishings god is just getting started in her story ruth is not a story of naomi's emptying ruth is a story of the total filling up of Naomi. And what we see here is that Naomi's story tells us that no matter how far we have wandered from God, no matter where, how deeply we might have put our roots down in compromised soil, no matter how much we might have had our lives emptied, God is ready to fill us. Like Naomi, our emptiness does not have to be our end. Like Naomi, it can just be our emptiness can just be the first five verses of a story that goes on for one, two, three, four chapters and beyond. And this is where we're going to be going with this series that we see this unfiltered emptying of Naomi here so that God can show us how abundantly and how richly he provides that he doesn't just provide for a nation, he doesn't just provide for a land, but he sees Naomi all the way over there in Moab, the nameless woman outside of the land, far off. And he says, I am going to lavishly, abundantly, overwhelmingly bless her. I mean, honestly, come through the series with us and see how ridiculously large the blessing that Naomi continues to receive throughout the series is. How Naomi is blessed, how Ruth is blessed, how Boaz is blessed. These three central people in this beautiful story, these three central, thoroughly ordinary, unspecial people, but God's people just like me, just like you, that as they live faithfully for him, they experience the open doors of his abundant storehouses. Naomi's, Naomi, she will see the end of her days of famine. And we too have seen the end of our days of famine. For Naomi, she is gonna see the promise of Bethlehem fulfilled in her life. She is going to return to Bethlehem and see it truly is an abundant house of bread where she is able to feast and feast and feast and feast. And we too have seen the promise of Bethlehem fulfilled in our day. 2,000 years ago, on Christmas morning, Bethlehem once again became The house of bread, the house of the bread of life, as it housed the baby Jesus Christ, the one who would grow up to proclaim himself to be the bread of life and that all who would feast on him will never go hungry, all that would know him will never know famine again and instead have eternal life. And so this series, it it will raise our faith that he wants to provide in our uncertainty and our our vulnerability and come abundantly to us in our circumstances, that in the months ahead, we can trust him for, for finances, we can trust him for provision in housing, we can trust him in our relationships, but it will also raise our faith, I hope, for what he has already provided for us, how because... Whatever we're feeling, however, whatever circumstances we might be facing, we are not an empty people, but already we are a people of abundance. Because we have Jesus Christ, we never have to look outside to the fields of Moab. That in Jesus we have fullness fullness, and in him we can feast. So, Rob, do you want to come and give us a bit of music? We are going to finish today by, it's probably a little bit grand to say we're going to finish by feasting, perhaps. Not quite sure it constitutes a feast. But we are going to feast on Jesus Christ together to remind ourselves that in him, we've already been filled. We never have to hunger. We never know famine again. And we're going to share communion through these awesome little cups of blessing. They are grape juice in the bottom and then they've got two lids and between the two lids is a bit of bread. So I'd like to invite you to stand if you can as we share communion together.